Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Uh, This is one of the better known passages of Scripture, one of the best known parables of our Lord. But it's important that we remember that this parable is a capstone of of three parables. Uh, We saw last week the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, in which was given an answer to... Uh, The Pharisees that murmured at Jesus' receiving of sinners and eating with sinners and publicans. Uh, The fact that Jesus' own behavior mimicked that of heaven above. That when sinners repented, there was great joy. Today, he expands upon it. And we can see the outline still, particularly in the first part of the parable, verses 11 through 24 how this just personalizes what is spoken before, before the the reclaimed sinner was pictured as a lost sheep and a lost coin. Now it is the prodigal son, the son that goes and wastes his living and his life that is returned. But there's more to it because it doesn't just end there. And Jesus uses this parable also to answer answer to the Pharisees, Uh, their own behavior towards gross sinners, if you will. Before I uh, read and and preach the sermon, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless both. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ to hear your words that you inspired infallibly by your Holy Spirit, the evangelist Luke. And we thank you, Father, that you have preserved these words for us. And we ask that you would give us this morning the same spirit, that these words as they are read and preached might not fall on deaf ears, that these words as they are preached might find fertile ground in our heart, that these ears as they are going forth might be by the pen of your Holy Spirit written upon our hearts, that they might bear fruit unto you, that we might repent of sin that we might trust in Christ our Savior, that we might be obedient to your will, and that we might rejoice as your will is done, particularly in your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word from the gospel of St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said... A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent unto him to, sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. 
make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Uh, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured this devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. The parable ends with the great lesson. The great lesson of all the parables, even though this parable has many other sub-lessons to go with it. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. This is Jesus' words to the Pharisees. It is meet that we rejoice that sinners are found and brought to life again. That they are living in newness of life. The first two parables, uh, as I mentioned before, spoke to the joy of heaven over a repentant sinner. This parable opens up to us why it is proper, why it is meet that heaven should so rejoice over repentant sinners. And we see this uh, demonstrated uh, in both of the sons. And as I mentioned before, with all time with parables, is always, we always want to, to make sure that we are looking at the context of Jesus' teaching and what he particularly says is his lesson to come out of the parable to kind of rein in our imagination with this uh, symbolic allegory. Because this is what parables are. And yet, this parable is rich with information about the process of redemption. Now, one thing, though, I want to say this. I want to say it right off the top because I'm not going to come back to it much. One of the things that is missing from this parable is the work of Jesus Christ and his grace. Because that's not his point in this parable. We are assuming the work of Christ. Christ is working when he receives these sinners 
unto glory. He is justifying what he's doing on the basis of the joy of heaven in the results of what he does. So when we look at these parables, we're not really discovering how the sheep is found. We're not really discovering how the coin is recovered. We're not really discovering how it is that the prodigal son comes to his senses and on what basis his sinfulness is is accepted by heaven. What we're looking at is the whole point of all that that we know comes through the cross of Jesus Christ and his grace, but the purpose, the telos, the, the end of what Christ's work is. By looking at the condition before, the lost sinner, and the condition after, the recovered sinner. The middle stuff is there, and there's aspects to it that we'll look at, but it's not all there. So turning back to the parable then, how does... The, the returning prodigal glorified the holy God. That's the first thing we'll look at. Second thing we'll look at is how despising the repentant, uh, or the prodigal son, offends the glory of the holy God. And I, and I mentioned the holy God particularly because this is the basis on which the Pharisees justified their murmuring against Jesus Christ. Because in their view, the behavior of Jesus in receiving sinners... And eating with the publicans was not worthy of the holiness of God, was unholy itself. And if he had a mission, it denigrated from the glory of God. And they looked upon their judgmental attitude and their separatism as the hallmark of glorifying God's holiness. So it is meet and right that Jesus attacks it on this front, as we shall see. So how does the returning prodigal glorify the holy God? He does so two ways. He does so negatively, he does so positively. First, negatively, uh, by, and, and this is an interesting aspect, we might be tempted if we were in Jesus' shoes to mitigate the sin. We might be tempted to say, well, these publicans that you are so uh, uh, judgmental of, that you detest so much, they're not really as bad as you think they are. Let me explain to you why their sin is, is somewhat less than you suppose. That's not what Jesus does. He, in fact, so magnifies sin and paints a picture of it that he's going to paint it so well that he's going to entrap the Pharisees in the same judgment, as we will see. So first, the the prodigal reveals the returning prodigal, the returning sinner unto God. One of the negative things he does is reveal to us the sinfulness of sin. We can't rely on the world that is still in its sin and enjoying its sin to tell us that sin is sin. It will never paint a bad picture of what it does. It, in fact, does the opposite. It wants us to go sow sow our wild oats. It wants us to go live life to the fullest. And when it says live life to the fullest, it doesn't mean what Jesus said. I give you life that you might live it more abundantly. It says go indulge your every whim while you can and before you get too old to do so. And by indulging every whim, we mean every sort of vice. The world will call evil good and good evil. And it does so on a grand scale that we see in our society, justifying all manner of destruction, not only of that uh, 
high morality that God reveals in his law, but even that which even pagan natural philosophers can understand is good is completely and utterly destroyed. But the repentant sinner recognizes sin as sin, recognizes the evil for what it is. We see the sin in this, the first, you know, first six verses. You have this young man, and he is not going to be the main inheritor, but uh, the biblical law for the Israel after the flesh, for the Jews, was that you, know, you had the primogenitor would get the, uh, a double share portion of the inheritance, and the rest would divide it. Um, and he wants his portion, and the father gives him his portion now. And instead of ingratitude, uh, using that now in that great liberty and contributing to the building up, because uh, this is what he, he, if he is there and obedient and he would build up the, the house of his father and therefore build up his own inheritance, he rather seeks his good not in his father's house, but in a far country. And that's what sin does. That's what the fall of man was doing. Uh, when Adam permitted his wife to take of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he permitted her to listen to the lies of Satan that said, you shall not surely die. In fact, God is hiding a good from you because he knows when you eat this, you will be like God knowing good and evil. This is designed to make you like unto God in what is better than being godly. And it was a lie. It seeks our good apart from God. And that's what, that's what is symbolized there when he packs up everything and goes into the far country to live off his inheritance. So there's also this ingratitude for the gifts that God gives. Jesus says to love your enemy, even as your father uh, loves those who hate him. He causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad. And he causes the rain to fall on the good and the bad. But this man will not recognize. He is one of the bad. He won't recognize where that good comes from. And he's really, we see, not fit for self-rule. He can't control himself. And he reaps the whirlwind, quite literally. He indulges in the vanities and finds them to be vanities indeed, and he is left in want. Then to add misery to it, that, that the famine comes, and there's not even something to get on a regular basis. Instead of at that point, we're still in his own freedom of his will that chooses to seek his good in the far country. Instead of returning to his father, he rather enslaves himself to a citizen of that far country. It doesn't even know what's good for him. And we see that sin does not liberate, therefore, but enslaves and destroys. This is what John tells us in his first epistle. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This doesn't say that the Father doesn't love him because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That here we know the love of God that while we were yet his enemies and therefore loving the world, 
Christ died for us. Now, the love of the Father that is not in him is that love towards the Father. The Greek allows for that. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's the, that's the truth. That's the truth that this man has uh, denied. But there is grace. There is a point of recovery. And if there weren't, then we wouldn't have this parable. In verse 17, the man comes to himself. Now, I'm not going to go too much on all the, because that's not Jesus' point, how he comes to himself. We know from John's discussion with Nicodemus that man doesn't come to himself. Man can't uh, come to the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. So we know that this is a work of the Holy Spirit upon the man. And this work of the Holy Spirit is basically to give him eyes to see. To see the reality that he's living. And we see this again. Verse 17. When the man came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to eat, and I perish with hunger? Gross sinners come by grace to see things truly. And that moment of recovery is basically that moment when you see the misery of sin and the good of holiness. Because this is a two, he doesn't just see that he's miserable. He already knew he was miserable. That's why he enslaved himself to the world even further. But now he sees his own misery in the light of the good that God had put before him. When we stop calling good evil and start to recognize that good is good. I mean, we have a society that for hundreds of years has looked upon those good social regulations of family, of husbands and wives, of children in relation to their parents, of of what is good for society, and we have called that bondage and tyranny and old-fashionedness. And we have not passed on the wisdom of our fathers to our children. And it is plain to see by every heathen by every lost child, that they have inherited nothing. And you see the misery everywhere. That's not the moment of recovery. The moment of recovery is when we see we have those blinders of sin taken off, and we see the true nature of sin, and we also see at the same breath the goodness of God and the holiness to which he calls us. We're not saved by the law, but the law is part of the goal of salvation. Christ gave himself that he might procure to himself a people zealous of good works. That we might not by save ourselves by obedience, but that we might be saved from the bondage of sin, that we might enjoy the freedom of obedience and the blessedness thereof. And so this humbled sinner, he recognizes finally the misery of his sin and the goodness and good of holiness. 
But he has hope, see. He says, you know, I will go and confess. I have sinned before heaven and before you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. This is why, by the way, the gospel is necessary for the reclamation of sinners. Because we have to have hope. Hope motivates. Gospel hope is necessary because it gives mercy the opportunity to draw the miserable. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, two people betrayed Jesus Christ. Very particular, probably more than that. But two people are drawn out in clear lines. Judas Iscariot and Peter. Peter, who denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter was forewarned that he would do so, and did so in presumption. The difference between the two, because we're told both of them come to see what they did is wrong. But Judas had no hope. Judas had not been a good disciple. He had not given ear to his uh, instructor, his master. He had no hope that Jesus would receive him again. Because he never listened. His eyes were not open to the parables. They were blank mysteries to him. And without any hope and inability to undo what he had done, he hanged himself. Peter did know his Lord. And he was miserable. And we find that Peter, who usually goes ahead and before people, The only time that he does so is when he's going to the tomb. And even then, John, the beloved apostle, uh, outruns him. He hangs back until Jesus restores him on that coast on the Sea of Galilee. He didn't forsake because he recognized, as he had already said, Lord, where would we go but you? He may have been cast down and recognized what he had done because we're told he wept bitterly. But he had hope. He knew where his only hope lie. And so, the repentant sinner shows us, teaches us to view things truly, to see the sinfulness of sin, but also the good of living in the Father's house. As we read in Psalm 32, I will repent and I will be received. Psalm 32, 5. But then we look at the second son. And how the older son, despising the repentant, offends the glory of the holy God. This one is what Jesus, the other two parables in the first part of this parable, really elaborate on the same thing, uh, justifying his behavior with sinners. Now he turns it around and, and causes the Pharisees, or hopefully the Pharisees, if they will know what's good for them, if they have been uh, received the grace to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. He says, now look at your heart in your mirror. Let's look at you. Let's look at those that would begrudge the recovery of sinners. Is it humane? I mean, the, the very basic thing, uh, the response of his father, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother. Because the older son had, had said, you know, you despise me, but this thy son that wasted all your money on harlots. 
He says, well, this thy brother was dead and is now alive, was lost and found. So there is the basic humanity of it. But we see how the, the, that self-righteous judgmentalism that begrudges the mercy of God to sinners, how that holds God as a debtor. Notice that when the servant brought the joyful noise to him, he wasn't joyful himself. He didn't take a cue from his father and, and become joyful. This is the father's way. This is the way of the house. This is the way I should behave. No, he was angry. And not only that, he didn't go in and complain to his father. He, the father had to come out and entreat him. The picture we have is somebody who's putting himself over his own father. We bring God as a debtor. You have to give answer to me, God, for what you're doing here with these sinners. So it holds God as a debtor. And this is basically the motivation that we will see in this feigned, hypocritical, self-righteous obedience. Because it looks upon the covenant of God and the revelation of his law is, okay, well, this is how I get one up on God and make him in my debtor. He owes me. Self-righteousness uses holiness as just as tyrannical as that obstinate prodigal sinner did. Look at verse 29 and 30. It said, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, and neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Mm-hmm. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son is come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed the him the fatted calf. So he's basically saying, you're not, you're stingy with me and over generous with this sinner. You are unjust, Father. You are unwise, Father. But, but we see how his obedience to him was bondage. The younger son also looked at obedience to the father's house as bondage. He didn't like it. He went to the far country. He was more honest about the way he felt about his father. than that younger son, the older son, that was hypocritical. And his obedience blinds him to the father's mercy and generosity. Because the point is, and this is what we get in 31, the accusation of the son simply isn't true. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Anytime you wanted the fatted calf to feed your friends, it was there because it was yours. He's already divided the inheritance with him. It was the son's idea not to, to do that sort of thing. He, because he looked upon his father's commands and work as bondage, he therefore looked upon his father's affection as, as stingy. Because it all goes together. When we look upon the law, if we look upon the law as a burden, we don't want to be holier than thou. We don't want to be over much righteous. We don't want to, we don't want to be goody two-shoes. If we start using that language constantly, then we're going to open ourselves up to hear the temptation of the devil that says, you know what God is doing is trying to keep you down and you need to rebel. And there's true liberty in my way. That's a lie. And it was a lie that the younger son indulged in. It was a lie that the older son also indulged in.
the parable doesn't give us the reaction of the older son to the rebuke. And it doesn't so that we ourselves will ponder it. But clearly, the point is the joy. And really, there's a part that I didn't go through, 20 and 24. Not only do we have in these two sons a demonstration, first, of the sinfulness of sin, which magnifies the holiness of God. We, we have also that, 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 that way put before us to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and follow him, that, that not trusting to ourselves, but to Christ. We also get a window to judge our own hearts by, but then we also get a glimpse of the love. In verse 20, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He didn't kick him, he didn't destroy him, he kissed him. And the son said unto him, and we can imagine he's rehearsed this because it's the same words that we get earlier, although they're cut off. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And he doesn't get any further. When the father stops him there, he gives barks orders to his servants, says, get the robe, best robe, get the ring, get the shoes. The sons wore shoes, the servants didn't. He's being restored. He's being magnified. He's not content to forgive. But the Lord, when the sinner comes home, embraces and glorifies. Earlier in 11, 9 through 13, Jesus said, which of you that had a, a son that asked for bread would give him a, a rock? Or fish would give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father does. He's generous in his mercy. He clothes his son. He doesn't just forgive him, he clothes him. And of course, the sinner that is reclaimed by the grace of Jesus Christ and comes unto the Father is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul says in Colossians, be clothed with Christ. Put off the old man, put on the new man, which is Christ. Uh, Jesus, speaking to the churches in Asia Minor, says, put off your sin and put on Christ. When we have that vision of the heavenly army in Romans 9, uh, Revelation 19, we see Christ going forth with the word coming out of his mouth, the progress of the gospel throughout the world. And behind him, the army of the saints clothed with white linen of the righteousness of the Lamb. It's his highest joy. He doesn't kill the kid for the son that returns. He kills the best, the fatted lamb. He offers his best. And in the reclamation of sinners, did not God the Father give that which is dearest to him? Is that not the way of Christ in reclaiming sinners who did not consider to be equal with God, robbery from God because he was equal with God, but made himself nothing and took upon our flesh that he might suffer and die, that he might be raised again, not of his own self, but that he might bring many sons to glory. And it's joy. Joy that death and sin is defeated. That victory is won. When Jesus comes and receives sinners, he doesn't receive sinners that stay sinners. The younger son doesn't come back to the father to ask his inheritance again and then go spend it on harlots. He doesn't receive back into his house a whoremonger. He sent away a whoremonger. 
that wanted to be one and that became one. But he received back somebody that was humbled and obedient. And if the older son doesn't get his act together, which one will be the son that magnifies his father? The one that was humbled. I call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Because the righteous don't know they need to repent. So the question for you this morning is do you really rejoice in the liberty and mercy of the gospel? What is more glorious? That sin and death should abound in the world or that sinners should be received and reclaimed? Because that is the logic of the Pharisee and the self-righteous Christian. If we will not open our hearts and if we will not go and receive sinners, if the gospel doesn't go forth, if Christ doesn't go forth and receive sinners, then all it is is a war of attrition that the devil will have to win. Because if we don't want to see sinners reclaimed, that means that there will just be more and more sinners that are confirmed and the kingdom of heaven will dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and disappear. For the glory of Christ's kingdom is not the glory of the angelic kingdom. You know, there were angels that did not fall and there were angels that fell, but never the twain shall meet. The glory of Christ's kingdom is that he won it as spoils in battle against the devil. That he reclaimed the dead and now they live. That he reclaimed the lost and now they are found. And that joy is the joy of gospel. That's the gospel joy. That is the great glory of heaven. That's the great glory, hopefully, that you and I all will witness. And I don't mean, you know, we speak in the parables or images of the worst. You know, people are reclaimed at various points of this process. Even Jesus knows that the best stories come from the worst sinners, right? But we need to be careful that we don't hear Jesus in the wrong way that says, go and sin all the more that your story will be great. Be grateful that you never had to go far, that you could see the sinfulness of sin in somebody else's misery. When uh, a, a hellfighter down in Laurel who's been in prison and comes out and discovers the, the mercy of Christ Jesus, he doesn't go to, uh, tell people his story so that they will follow him to the prison house and then to... The, the halfway house and then to restoration. He tells them the story so they won't have to. And so hopefully in Christian homes, we have this obedience and we're called to be obedient unto the Lord. But is our obedience such because we see it is the goodness that God gives us and the right way, the wise way, the holy way that he sets before us of life eternal? Or is our obedience, do we consider it to be bondage and we just hope to, to, to wing something off of God, out of God, to, to force him to, to, to pay our debts? If it's the second, if you begrudge obedience to God and therefore begrudge the sinners reclaimed and the mercy of God, and take heed, because the older son is the lost son, not the younger. Don't be he that expects entry into heaven and hears instead, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Let's pray.
Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would be given your mercy, that we might know the sinfulness of sin and the goodness and the glory of holiness. We confess, Father, that there is no way in our own heart that we could ever come to you apart from your grace and mercy. Bring us to our senses. Draw us to yourself, not just in conversion, but also in a lifelong repentance from sin. That we might ever trust you and be very wary of ourselves. That we might ever rejoice in your, uh, your mercy to us and to our neighbor and even to our enemy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.